0: You never know what God is up to. You never know what he's teaching you. Uh, I, I'm preaching this sermon from Matthew 17. You can be turning there. And it's reflections and lessons from the transfiguration. And um, the big idea of Matthew 17 is sort of similar to what I just experienced. What, what is God doing? You know, what is he teaching me in my life day to day? What is he teaching you in your life day to day? in light of your own life and in light of the big picture of what he's doing in his grand plan that you get to participate in and I get to participate in. This is, um, this is a lesson that Jesus was teaching the disciples that he teaches us and wants us to learn. It's, it was a lesson for them to prepare them for the mission that they would undergo and it's a lesson for us to prepare us for the mission that we have to undergo. Like what does God have for us? And if you were to boil all of that lesson and all of that mission down to one word, it would be um, the word discernment. Um, Jesus wants to build in you the ability to see with spiritual eyes what in the world's going on in your life personally and in your life in view of the mission that he has for you. That's what he's doing. Discernment is a gift that every child of God is given It's the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit of God, but the lights turn on and we are able to see um, his work in our own lives and the work of God in the world. The amazing thing that happens when you are discerning is you can not only discern the difference between truth and error, you go, okay, that's the true gospel and this is kind of a false gospel or this is trending in a way that's dangerous, that's discernment but it's also discerning God's personal touch in your life, His involvement in your life. That's when that's when things get fun, is when you see God's hand working in the circumstance of your life. If you don't, ha- if you're not in touch with that, you're missing out. You don't see evangelistic op- opportunities. You don't see the the new divine appointment and conversation, one thing leading to another. But the trap of just Focusing narrowly in terms of what god 's doing in your own life and not widening the lens to what he 's doing in the world is you can become introspective and self absorbed in that uh, Christianity takes a kind of goes off off the interstate on the off ramp and gets um, kind of in a quagmire where um, a lot of times people get stuck on themselves and they're like, oh, you know, every praise chorus is about me. Every, Every prayer is about me. Every church, you know, sort of visit that I go on is about me fixing me. And God definitely is working in our lives in a personal way. But what's important is to bring the balance of what he's doing in your life to a wider scale of your thinking where you go, what is, how does God want what he's doing in my life to affect the bigger mission, to participate in the grander scheme of kingdom involvement? Yes, we're to draw near to God, and he will draw near to us, James 4, eight says. And this is very difficult work to do, to take your eyes off yourself and put them on Jesus. And that, that's foundation stone one. But right after that, you need to think, now this... This mission and plan of God in my life is really not about me. It's about his glory and what is he doing in the world? And how can I participate in it? God's nearness is amazing. He's not an inanimate object. He's not an idol. He is living and active in our day to day. But Christians are so hardwired to just stay focused on self because of the culture and the way the world instructs us uh, to have a mindset of meism, that sometimes we miss God's greater work in the world, being involved in the greater whole or the redemption story. And I want to just advise you, this doesn't mean that God loves you less. He loves you more because he gave you something to do. He loves you for you and he made you as your creator. He brought you to life. He's working in your life. But we're not supposed to just stay there thinking about ourselves. We're supposed to get out and and see what God is doing. And I don't mean just joining a missions trip. I mean looking for what God is doing in his greater purposes through you. God loves you because He, he gives you meaning and he gives you goals that supersede yourself. Is this a theological fairy tale to live this way? Is this just pie in the sky? Well, think about how Jesus viewed his life. He was here. God, the Father, intimately acquainted with all his ways. He's doing all night prayer in, in fellowship with the Lord, whole dependence upon God. John 17 shows us that. The Garden of Gethsemane shows that. Um, the power of the Holy Spirit's in his life. But he's at the same time doing everything according to God's timetable, everything according to God's will everything according to his mission to go sacrifice himself on the cross, everything was timed out in terms of a greater redemptive story. And how much did the father love Jesus? Amazingly. You can't have a father-son relationship that's more pure and more devoted than that one. And he loves you and me like that as well. He's guiding us with intimate care and empowerment, but he's also allowing us to participate in his kingdom work. We follow Christ, we're going to follow his life pattern. We follow Christ, we're going to invite ourselves into conversations, debates, discussions, questions, defending the faith. All that's going to happen. We're going to experience persecution. If they, if they persecute the master, they're going to persecute the, the servant. And all of that is to be expected, and it was to be expected for Peter, James, and John who had just ascended probably 3,000 plus um, feet up a mountain, maybe Mount Tamor, and uh, sort of north of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus went up there and peeled back as if it were his humanness to reveal his deity, to put his deity on the forefront and sublimate his his, uh, humanity on the back burner. Both were equally still there, but his glory was on display. The Shekinah glory that, that Peter, James, and John had read about, studied their whole lives from the Old Testament. That was on display on this mountaintop experience, the same shining glory that led the children of Israel through the wilderness was on display out of Christ's face, out of off of his clothes emanating. And then there was the pre pre resurrection um, appearances of Moses and Elijah who are there reflecting how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. All of it meant um, that Jesus is the point of everything. All the sacrifices, all the sacrificial system, all the prophecies, it was all giving glory to Christ. And the glory was bouncing off of Moses and Elijah and back to Jesus. And so Peter, James, and John are depicted as waking up, according to Luke's account. They're waking up from praying, and they see this laser light show that is a profound Um, indescribable revelation of God. It's heaven on earth and Peter calls it good. Let's build three shelters just like the children of Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles will reflect the glory of God here on display with Moses, Elijah and Jesus and we'll call it good. And suddenly Jesus in an instant shuts it down and shows himself as the point of all of it. Everything goes quiet. Everything goes still. And Peter, James, and John are reeling and reflecting upon what has happened. God, the father has shown up with a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Don't listen to Peter. Peter wants to call it good. Heaven on earth. We don't need to do suffering. We don't, you don't need to go to the scribes. You don't need to go back to Jerusalem. You don't need to die. Let's just call it. It's here. The glory is here. And the father is going, no, there's a greater redemption plan that you need to dial into. Don't listen to Peter, listen, listen to my son. He's the point of it all. And so now that's lesson one from the transfiguration that's being applied as the three with Jesus are descending the mountain. They're on a descent and they are talking. And we don't have recorded, at least in Matthew's account a whole lot of detail about what they're talking about, but we have a good idea of the summary of what Jesus is saying to them. And lesson number two comes to the fore in our text in verse nine, but I'm gonna read verses nine to 13 to give us the sweep of the sermon. As they were coming down, verse nine, the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And his disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So lesson two is be willing to discern God's providence. Got to have a willingness to listen to Jesus. And then you have to be willing to use your discernment gift. Be willing to discern what God is doing in your life. How Jesus is working things out and growing you and how he's working things out in the our world according to his plan and how we can participate in it. That's discernment. That's where I'm anchoring our focus on discernment. Yes, we discern between truth and error. That is categorically a big part of discernment and the discernment gift. But the second part is discerning God's will in our life personally, in the small picture, and God's work in the world in the big picture and how we participate in it. That's what he's prepping them for in this conversation. They're reacting, Peter, James, and John are, to the transfiguration and processing what they just saw and what it means in terms of their life to build discernment. Well, the first point under point two is Jesus puts the kibosh on the disciples. You, you can't say anything about this. It's happened, but you can't talk about it. Not until I'm raised. What's going on there? He commanded them. This is an open and shut Discussion, this is, I'm telling you, don't say anything. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Can't talk about it. Think of the <coughs> most exciting thing that's ever happened to you in your life. Perhaps getting married, having your first child. Someone was miraculously healed. You can't explain it. Um, just any great event. You get a job, I don't know. Just some life Event, you want to share that. We're designed to share joy with others so we can magnify the joy and enjoy it and appreciate it even more. And Jesus is saying this incredible event. Peter has had a front row seat, James and John too, to every miracle event up to this point. And Peter is saying this is an apex event. It's as big as Jesus' birth perhaps as big in one sense of the glory of God at the resurrection. We talked about all of that, tracing it in the timeline of the Bible. This is a major event of glory, and they would want to share about it. And they have a good motivation to do that. It's unparalleled in their mind. They want to magnify the Lord. They want to prove that Jesus is the point of the law and the prophets, They want to answer the scribes. They want to answer the Pharisees, the accusers that have come against Christ. No, we have seen with our own eyes that he is God. And we want to tell people about that. This rivals everything. Declaring this apex event seems to be expedient in terms of the plan. They had lifted their eyes. They saw Jesus only. Everything went on a pause They're coming down, they're in shock, they're processing, and then they're coming to the conclusion that they need to share. We need to get out and tell people that we have seen the Lord in an incredible way. And Jesus answers them with what is called the messianic secret. Shh, don't tell anybody. Miracle happens, Shekinah glory is on display, don't say anything. Often Jesus was protecting himself in terms of God's plan and his timetable. He doesn't want to be rushed Um, to be um, exalted into political power, pragmatically. He doesn't want to be rushed as a person who's the Mr. Fix-It healer. He wants to be walking according to the will of God that's bigger than himself. Again, Jesus wasn't self-absorbed. He knew God was working his life, but he knew he was walking according to the bigger plan. That's living by discernment. This is the lesson that Jesus wants to pass down to the disciples as he passes the baton of the mission on to them. He knew that it was important for them to begin to grasp this. Tell no one until I'm raised. Tell no one of this until the plan that I have predicted has played out to that level. He's not saying don't tell anyone ever. He's saying wait to tell after I'm raised, every miracle that Jesus ever did was not making the miracle the point of what had just happened in and of itself. Every miracle reflected something about Jesus and was part of the greater promise that Jesus is the savior from our sins. Every miracle is to expose us to what heaven will be like. It's a foretaste of heaven. So we'll want to deal with our sin, So that we'll believe the truth and be set free by faith, saying, I want Jesus as my Savior. When the charismatic church makes a miracle of the point rather than something that points to Jesus, but a miracle in and of itself becomes the point of everything, that takes a detour away from truth. Miracles happen, miracles are amazing. Miracles can only be explained as something that God alone could do, but the miracle in and of itself is not ever the point. The miracle instead, I'm playing on words here, it points to Christ always as the Savior. And Jesus was concerned not to short circuit the plan and will and sort of flow of where God's. Will is going, which he's just said earlier in Matthew 16, verse 21, I'm going to, I must go. Do you see that language? I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's the point. The glory of God is to stoke the fire in the hearts of Peter, James and John, to save that fire in their hearts to say heaven's worth it, heaven's real, heaven's where I want to go, but you got to go through suffering first. And you got to believe on the, you got to deal with your sin first. And it's dealt with with Jesus as the pioneer sufferer for us on our behalf and his followers likewise will suffer. But that's the path to glory. It's the cross before the crown. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand this. So many people will trade truth for experience. I mean, the disciples admittedly later will account for this eyewitness experience. We talked about that in John chapter 1, verse 14, the glory of Christ. We beheld the glory of the Son of God who is full of grace and truth. That's talking about this experience. First Peter, chapter one, verses 16 to 21. We have become eyewitnesses of the glory of God, and yet we have a more sure word in our own heart, conviction, we believe truth. That's the whole point of Second Peter, I should say, chapter one, 16 to 21, First John 1, one to four, the one we've held and seen and witnessed to. This is the one who is the eternal life that we have witnessed. And that all all is a reference to the transfiguration, this event that verified Jesus as the eternal life. This miracle and glory is amazing, but they were commanded to hold it in their hearts. Such a temptation to shortchange God's Plan to be impatient, but they were called to wait until Jesus was raised from the dead. You have to see the immediate providence of God in your life, what God is teaching you today and day-to-day living And you have to see it in view of God's plan as it is unfolding. And let me tell you this. It was hard for the disciples to do that. And it's hard for us to do that. This takes hard work, intentional work, gut searching work to say, God, I'm going to be patient and and see what you are providentially working out in my life. How are you working in my life? And how are you using me in terms of your will? So point one. Jesus put the kibosh or the gag order on the disciples, point two, under this lesson, the lesson of being willing to discern God's providence, we see the disciples' ignorance that's on display in verse 10. It says, and the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? Now, this is something, if you're just reading it, you will just pass over it um, as not that Um, sort of interesting or sort of off in terms of what the disciples did here but they actually are wanting to take Jesus to task with the theology lesson on the way down the mountain. Now Jesus has just shown himself in full display of glory and and all of his deity and this effulgence of splendor heaven on earth and they're like well okay we're not supposed to say anything about this but what about what the scribes say in terms of the timeline that Elijah is supposed to come and then we're, you know, then the Messiah is verified. What about that from Malachi, right, Jesus? And the scribes say that Malachi says that, right? And they're the authority figures. I mean, this is incredible. The scribes themselves have been predicted as ones in Matthew 16, 21, that are gonna kill Jesus. The scribes have been attacking Jesus. The scribes, they don't have spiritual understanding. They're not born again leaders. They're like liberal Pharisee teachers that, you know, they know things superficially, but the disciples are going, look, we just saw Elijah. We saw Moses. We saw Elijah. That's a softball that God is giving us to tell everybody about you. You need some life coaching here, Jesus. This was about you, but The disciples were naive. They weren't listening. They were acting like Peter, where Peter said, you don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer. The three together in unison are going, we got the timeline down. We took Bible 101. We got Bible survey down. Elijah, boom. And then Jesus, right? And Jesus is trying to get them to see that suffering comes first. They don't want to acknowledge that. They don't want to hear, I don't think, that Jesus needs to be raised from the dead. Let's just short-circuit that process. Look at verse 11. It says, and he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. What's amazing is that Jesus uses a very good means for clarification. This is point, sub-point three, Jesus' clarification. You have, again, Jesus putting the kibosh on, you know, the gag order on the on the disciples don 't say anything about this. The disciples then are um, they 're ignorant to what Jesus is saying, and then Jesus gives a clarification. He does so in a way that 's interesting because verse eleven says, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things that 's a great form of argumentation when someone 's bringing an argument to try to contradict what you 've just said just agree with them, (laughs) at least in part. It's finding common ground. You're right. You have the timeline correct. Elijah first, and there is a restoration from what he says. It's amazing. That's true. The original Greek language is using the aorist tense, which arao is this picture of a mountain range idea where you see everything at once. Everything at once, all of the span at once. And It's almost like seeing a train go by. You can see a train in terms of each car passing by or you're in the drone looking down at a whole train at one time. This is seeing the whole story of what Jesus is saying all at once. You're right. Elijah comes and then there's restoration. That is absolutely 100% true. He does come. He will restore. It's a story. That's the true story. We're all working off the same sheet of music but you're missing, you're missing a key component in this greater story. We need to put all the pieces together in the story. A lot of times people miss the forest for the trees. They're too myopically focused on this to not see the big picture. In this sense, they were missing the trees for the forest. They're seeing the big picture saying Elijah and then Messiah, right? But Jesus is going, but you're missing some key components, That all could be boiled down to, Jesus is going to the cross. Elijah's arrival was significant to announce Christ's ministry. He's announcing the solution for restoration. And the transfiguration, though it was majestic, though, was never meant to cut short the full message of Elijah. And again, the scribes who were, at this point, enemies of Christ, They're not going to pick up on the fact that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecy for Elijah coming. John the Baptist did say in his prophetic preaching, he did talk about the end, but he also talked about the cross. He talked about Christ coming as the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was preaching a gospel of repentance You have to repent and follow. Then you can be baptized. That was the message of John the Baptist. And it was as if the disciples were missing the whole point of that hard path. Remember, Jesus has been saying to them, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I've got to go. You've got to follow. It's a difficult path. Look at verse 12. He says... But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did whatever they pleased. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm gonna agree with you, verse 11. We're all on the same page. Elijah comes, there's the story. He's gonna bring the message of restoration. But newsflash, Elijah has already come. Yeah, you saw the transfiguration, the transfigured Christ. You saw a um, pre- Resurrection version of Elijah. We verified that along with Moses. But in terms of the prophetic mission and announcement of Christ that already happened, don't miss that. Don't miss that. By the way, they didn't recognize him. Who's they? That's the scribes. The nearest antecedent to what Jesus is talking about is the scribes. They didn't get it. And they were representing a lot of people that didn't recognize John the Baptist. As the fulfillment of Elijah, which vindicates that Christ is coming. They didn't get it. The word recognized is the word epignosis. It means to spiritually discern. They showed no discernment, they didn't see the issue of the heart. Remember, the, the scribes and the Pharisees went to John the Baptist, the crowds amassed out to him. He was out in the desert, he's calling people to a baptism of repentance. They're leaving the religious center of Jerusalem, which is a symbol of leaving the false religion that was being um, propounded there. And they're going out to the wilderness to a proselyte baptism to say, I want to truly be a convert, to be a follower of the coming Messiah. I'm following this baptism of John, this baptism of repentance. And so the scribes and Pharisees, they slither out because John the Baptist calls them a brood of what? Say it with me. Vipers, snakes, I was just in Florida. That's where they live, in the Everglades, super scary. I grew up with snakes and stuff, but I haven't been there in a long time. And guess what, I'm going in the house where I was, you know, invited to stay and there was a nice long snake skin that was just sitting there, almost like a little grave marker saying, oh, you know, they exist and they're around. I Saw a lizard head stick its head out and I went, oh, you know, but it was just a lizard. Kind of looking around, you know. Scary stuff. Snakes are scary, but venomous snakes are scary, scary. They're the ones that don't just scare you. They're the ones that make you sick or kill you. And John the Baptist was saying, you're a brood of vipers. You're a pack of snakes that kill people. You're lethal. That's what he meant. And they were trying to integrate themselves into this religious movement so they could slither in, sneak in, And act like they're just part of the crowd and then pop up and start to take people out with their scribal titles and authority. Pharisees and scribes say, now we're taking over from the inside out. Now that we've been affirmed in leadership and we shouldn't be there, we're going to start to pick people off. And so why would they do that? Because they really didn't recognize John for who he was. And so they did to him whatever they pleased. What does that mean? Well, they attacked John's message, but John's message wasn't just contained to the desert. Remember, John's message went into the dungeon of Herod Antipas. You have the four Tetrarchs, the four um, brothers who are um, kind of quad dividing the greater, um, you know, Transjordan area of Galilee and Jerusalem. And it was Herod, the Great's sons. And you have Antipas, who's over by Galilee, who falls in love with uh, Herodias, who is his brother's uh, wife. And so he takes Herodias to himself. He's committing adultery. He's committing kind of a, a, a incest by, by law. And I mean, it's just wrong. And John the Baptist is calling that out. And the odd strange thing is, we've studied this, both in Mark's account and other accounts in Matthew, is that Herod Antipas liked John the Baptist preaching. He's a picture of big evangelicalism of the last hundred years in our culture. Oh, I like that preacher. It stirs me up. It fires me up. It's a good motivational speaker. Ooh, it makes me feel good inside. I want to do things, you know, in the name of God, but don't talk to me about my sin. But you can't have it both ways. He wanted to have it both ways. I'll just put John in jail, but keep preaching. This is exciting. I'll keep you contained, keep a little buffer. But his wife, Herodias, couldn't handle it. And ultimately, she had to not only incarcerate the word of God, but try to kill the word of God by taking off John's head. She successfully did that, but the message still, still rings through the disciples of John and through the Lord Jesus and disciples of Jesus trying to shut him up, trying to shut the word down. They couldn't do it, but that was what they were pleased to do. They didn't recognize him. They didn't discern him. Discernment is always when the spiritual lights come on. Discernment means you're born again. Discernment means you're no longer naturally minded. Discernment means you have eyes to see. You can see through the eyes of faith. Discernment means the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ has exploded in your heart. Discernment means you can see between um, truth and error. Discernment means you can see God's work and will in your life and his greater purposes. That's discernment. Luke 1, 4, uh, the Gospel writer Luke, Dr. Luke wrote to his good Gentile friend Theophilus in Luke 1, 4, that he wrote this, that you may have certainty. That's the Greek, same Greek word for understanding, epignosis, that you would have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Romans 1:32. they didn't have, it's like though they know God's decree, they had a level of discernment that was superficial in God's decree um, that those who practice such things, meaning sin, even though they know the truth, they deserve to die and not only do, um, and not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And then first Corinthians 13, 12 speaks of how all believers have discernment. We see in a mirror dimly, we see the little flints and pictures of the glory of God in our lifetime, but then face to face. Now, I, here's the word, know in part, that's epignosis, then I shall know fully. Once I'm in heaven, I'll have full knowledge of God and understanding, even as I have been fully known. He knows everything about us. This is the privilege of a believer. You have discernment, you do know truth. Verse 12, Christ says, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, they didn't have epignosis. This is, these are the scribes. These are the ones who, when Jesus is dying on the cross and he's in his greatest moment of need, Eloi, aloy lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They either hear that oddly or they twist it to say, oh, he's crying out for Elijah. Come save me. Elijah was never meant to save Jesus. Jesus is the savior of our sins. The irony of that is just Ridiculous. It's Elijah who's declaring that Jesus would come as Messiah, not the reverse. And Jesus had to hear that and still say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The soul killing mockery where people mock the word of God. They misapply the truth. They jeer at the Bible is all a wrong misconstrued way to think where you're missing the fact that humiliation before exaltation, cross before the crown, suffering before in the coronation, all of that has to happen you don't wanna miss what's right in front of you. You wanna discern your day you want to day. You wanna discern souls that are in front of you. You wanna discern the needs of your children. You wanna discern the needs of your grandchildren. You wanna discern the needs of your spouse. You wanna discern the needs that God has in front of you, both in terms of your own soul and in terms of your participation in the greater kingdom. Otherwise you'll miss out. and It's, it's tragic when we miss out on what God is doing. I told this joke the first hour, and I will just not belabor it. But it's the guy that's on the island, and um, you know he's shipwrecked there, and the tide is coming in, and the water is encroaching, and he has to climb up the mountain to you know to escape the tide that's going to overtake him, and he prays for a miraculous rescue. And he feels and senses that God is going to rescue him. A plane lands on the gravel strip that's still exposed. But he said, you got to climb down the mountain to be saved. He was unwilling to do that. He said, God will save me. Then you have the boat that comes by and hollers with the loudspeaker, just swim for safety. He says, no, it's a little too dangerous. God will save me. And then lastly, the helicopter's hovering with the ladder that's And you just climb up the ladder and you'll be saved. And he's like, no, no, God will actually save me. The water's going up to his nose. He has one last gasp. And he says, God, why didn't you save me? I sensed that you were going to do that. And the Lord speaks down and says, I sent a plane, I sent a boat, and I sent a helicopter. What more do you want? I can't tell that joke. It doesn't work. (laughs) And it's all because you already heard it. Eight ways to Sunday. Oh, well, I should have used discernment not to say that joke but I didn't. All right. It's a gift to, to have discernment, to be alive spiritually is to have discernment. This is what we're supposed to have. And we have to discern what the Lord is about in our lives and what he's doing. There's so many people who, um, who miss the fact that they need to deal with their own sin. The reason people deny, um, and don't see what God is doing in their life is because they're living for a lighter path, an easier life. That's what Jesus is really redirecting in the disciples' life. It is the hard path. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's not, a, it's not like some sort of reckless bravado where we're trying to harm ourselves and make life hard for ourselves. It's just embracing the struggle, embracing the trial, embracing the difficulty, Working in terms of the gospel, gospel conversations. I mean, Peter was like promised that he would be martyred. And then he says, well, what about John? (laughs) And Jesus says, that's not for you to know. Just embrace the path that I've taken. Better to be lame, better to have an arm severed, better to lose um, your sight, better all these things than to be sent to hell and be whole, right? I mean, go the hard path. The hard path is sanctification. It's embracing suffering for sanctification often. And Jesus is making the point here that if John suffered and he was killed, then what do you think is going to happen to me? Verse 12. So also the son of man will certainly, certainly suffer at their hands. Suffering at their hands means under their hands, under pressure, under the pressure of the scribe. This is a fait accompli. It's going to happen. I'm going to have to suffer. So, did the disciples understand what's going to happen? Did they get the point? That's my last sub point, sub point D. It's the disciples' discernment. So, you have Jesus putting the kibosh on them, you have the disciples' ignorance, and you have um, Jesus that is, um, he's clarifying what's going on, that it really was John the Baptist. And then you have the disciples' discernment, verse 13. The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. If they understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist, then they would put it together and begin to say, okay, John's path is why Jesus has to die. John's hard path is a foretaste of Jesus' hard path. And guess what that means? By implication, this is our hard path as well. You say, why would I want that kind of path? Well, suffering is what turns the lights on in our life. People are very, very stubborn. I'm very, very stubborn and set in my ways, and it takes hard things for me to grow. But the growth that I experience from the hard thing that God has dialed up in my life is not ultimately first and foremost about me being content with what's going wrong with my life. Like, oh, life is hard. Oh, wait, now I see what God is doing in my life, and so I'm better off for it, so I'll embrace it. That's not enough. Yeah, we have to cast our cares upon the Lord, but we also have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus into the battle. Discernment is seeing what God is doing in your life to grow you so you'll repent of things so you'll be moved to reconcile. I mean, how many people on their deathbed say, look at their family and say, is there anything that I need? I've been in those situations. I've been privileged to watch these meetings. Everything good, everything good, everything good. Why? Because that's all that really matters. I just want to be right with the Lord and with my neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. I want things to be right, horizontally and vertically. Then I can go to heaven. I want to deal with that. And and oftentimes, hard trials are worked in our lives, so we'll grow. But then, once we cast our cares and we lay our burdens down, then we got to take up our cross, take up our shield of faith, take up the armor of God. We say, Lord, your grace is sufficient for me. I've prayed three times. I've humbled myself. Now power is perfected in weakness. I will be tried as fine silver and gold and precious metal by the genuine testedness of my faith. It's 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9. I can now consider it all joy when various trials and testing weigh down on me, knowing that the testing of my faith will produce endurance. Endurance to do what? Live in self-absorption? No, run the race all the way to the end. Think about that. You get to run. You get to participate. So yeah, discern what God's doing and then take up your cross and go. That's what Jesus is saying. I've got to go. Suffer and die and you've got to carry on the mission that's lesson two you got to see it i gave you a window into glory but not so you just live and talk about that but so that you go into the battle and persevere all the way to the end jesus is wanting them to discern this so that they can be satisfied in life and the disciples i think take a step I think they're still grasping it. They're still trying to understand it. But they take a step. They take a step. How do we get this mindset? How do we keep this mindset? Let's keep learning. We'll pick it up next week.